I have recently read a book called Canoeing the Mountains. It's a book on leadership in the church, and it, it springboards out of the story of Lewis and Clark, those great explorers of the early 1800s. And when Lewis and Clark discovered the source of the Missouri River, they found something that they were not expecting. In fact, they discovered that everyone was wrong. You see, the expert geography people of the day, they all believed that at the source of the Missouri River, they would discover a gentle slope going down to the Columbia River that would meander along the way, all the way to the Pacific coast. Lewis and Clark, however, discovered something of the likes of which they had never seen before, something they'd never even imagined. They discovered the Rocky Mountains of Montana. And in that moment, they had a decision to make. As expert river people, would they continue over the mountains by staying in their canoes and just paddling harder. Well, of course they wouldn't do that. But, but that meant for them they had to leave behind. They had to drop the canoes and leave behind everything they knew, everything they understood. And they had to take a step into uncharted territory where no one was an expert. And they did. They took that step into uncharted territory. And we know that nothing has ever been the same. Sometimes our path requires dropping canoes and doing something we'd never imagined doing. I want to read together in Joshua chapter 6. The story of the Battle of Jericho. I'm going to be reading the story as we move through it from the Christian Standard Bible. I hope that you'll look on your version of the Bible and follow along with me in Joshua chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now, Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites, no one leaving or entering. The setup for the story is the statement of the strength of Jericho. Jericho was strong. It was fortified. No one was coming in or out. They had these great walls as if to say to the people of God, we are strong. In fact, Jericho would likely have appeared to be so incredibly strong and fortified until God speaks. Look what he says, verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, Look, I have handed Jericho, its king, and its best soldiers over to you. God tells Jericho, God tells Joshua that Jericho and the battle is already won. Before they ever do any fighting, any battle, any battle plans, God says to Joshua, hey, Jericho is strong, but they are not strong like me. And the battle is already won. The Lord was with Joshua, and with the Lord was victory. 
And that victory was inevitable and certain. Look at verse 3. These plans that Joshua is going to hear from the Lord are the kinds of plans that are like dropping the canoes. (laughs) This is nothing like Joshua would have ever imagined. Look at verse 3. March around the city with all the men of war circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horns in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the trumpets. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear its sound, have all the troops give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse and the troops will advance, each man straight ahead. This is not normal military strategy. I wonder when Joshua heard this, if he began to think to himself, Lord, please help this people not be like my generation. Because if Joshua's generation had heard these plans, we already know what they would have done. They would have grumbled and complained And said to the Lord, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? Are you kidding me? I wonder if Joshua was concerned about how this new generation would respond to him. These are not the plans that Joshua would ever have imagined. And I'm sure he had some insecurities around conveying these plans. Hoping and believing and praying that this generation would hear God's plan. No matter how unusual it sounded, to simply trust him and obey him and not complain at all. Well, Joshua, he's not going to be disappointed at all. Verse 6, Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, have seven priests carry seven trumpets in front of the Ark of the Lord. He said to the troops, Move forward, march around the city, and have the armed men go ahead of the Ark of the Lord. After Joshua had spoken to the troops, seven priests carrying seven trumpets before the Lord moved forward, blew the trumpets. The ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. While the trumpets were blowing, the armed men went in front of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard went behind the ark. But Joshua commanded the troops, do not shout or let your voice be heard. Don't let one word come out of your mouth until the time I say shout. Then you are to shout. So the ark of the Lord was carried around the city, circling it once. They returned to the camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning. The priests took the ark of the Lord, and seven priests carrying seven trumpets marched in front of the ark of the Lord. While the trumpets were blowing, the armed men went in front of them, and the rear guard went behind the ark of the Lord. On the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days days. Joshua gave the instructions to the people and the people simply trusted the Lord. That the battle was his, the victory was his, and they simply needed to follow him. Now there's one thing that's clear about these battle plans is when it's all said and done, only one person's going to get the credit. This was God's victory. This was his battle. The battle was already won. He was with his people, the victory was his, and they believed him. And they did it. No complaints. This was a massive change. 
This was the moment that the people decided we are on the edge of uncharted territory. No one is an expert here. No matter what our past experience has been, these battle plans cause us to drop our canoes and trust the Lord and only the Lord as the one who knows how we ought to spend our lives. And they simply obey Joshua. And for six days, they walk around Jericho one time each day. Now, what would it have been like to be in Jericho on that first day when this group walks around the city? I wonder how many of them are thinking, what in the world are they doing? And then day two, these people have no idea what they're doing. I wonder if the fear in Jericho began to kind of drift away and maybe their confidence began to grow as they saw the Israelites just simply march around the city once each day, six days in a row. Imagine what was happening in the Israelite camp each evening when all those who had marched around the city got back into camp. I like to think about the people who are in the group marching around Jericho who are talkers. Not one word. Not one. Zero words. Now, you know when they get back to the camp, they are talking. They are letting people know what it was like. I, I also think about, you know, they're sitting around in the evenings with their families. And, and I, I suspect that their kids are saying, hey, what was it like out? Did, did anybody say anything? Was everybody really silent? What did it feel like? Were, were people yelling at you from Jericho's wall? Were they making fun of you? And they talked about it as families, what was happening. I just imagine every day this sense of anticipation is rising in the Israelite camp. I suspect that day one kind of crept by and day two seemed to slowly eke by as minute by minute passed. And each day they just circled the city one time. But then all of a sudden, you know how it happens, day seven arrives. You ever feel like that? The time just creeps by and then all of a sudden it's here. The thing you've been waiting for, the thing you've been anticipating, day seven has suddenly arrived. And look at what happens on day seven, verse 15. Early on the seventh day, they started at dawn and marched around the city seven times in the same way. This was the only day they marched around the city seven times. If you're in Jericho, don't you know at the beginning of lap two, word traveled. Something's different about today. Perhaps in Jericho, the tension begins to rise. But I can guarantee you that among the troops of Israel, with each passing lap, the anticipation of God's victory was increasing. Look at verse 16. After the seventh time, the priests blew the trumpet, and Joshua said to the troops, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. But the city and everything in it are set apart to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and everyone with her in the house will live. Because she hid the messengers we sent. 
But keep yourselves from the things set apart, or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of the things, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. For all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. So the troops shouted and the trumpets sounded. And when they heard the blast of the trumpet, the troops gave a great shout and the wall collapsed. The troops advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. They completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword. Every man and woman, both young and old, and every ox, sheep, and donkey. There are three things that happen at that moment that we must see together in order to see God rightly in the story. God has conveyed who he is through story in the scripture. And this story is God revealing himself. But for us to rightly see him, we must see these three things. God's victory. God had the victory, and the people experienced God's victory through believing in him, God's victory. The second thing you need to see is God's judgment on Jericho. And the third thing we must see is God's salvation of Rahab. All three of those things must be seen to to see God correctly. You need to see God's victory. You need to see God's judgment. And you need to see God's salvation of Rahab through her faith. If we lose sight of any of those three significant things that happen at this moment, we will lose sight of who God is revealing himself to be. Keep in mind what we see in this story in God's victory, God's judgment, and God's salvation. Let's continue verse 22. Joshua said to the men who had scouted the land, go to the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of there, all who are with her, just as you swore to her. So the young men who had scouted went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city and everything in it. They put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. However, Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, her father's family, all who belonged to her, because she hid the messengers Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho. And she still lives in Israel today. Do you hear the emphasis that this story gives Rahab's salvation? This story of Jericho is a story of God's victory, but it's a story of judgment. 
that needs to be understood in light of Rahab's deliverance that comes through his people walking in God's victory through faith. And we're going to unpack that so that we see rightly what God is revealing about himself through this story. Look at what happens at the end of the story. Verse 26. Joshua imposes a curse on Jericho. He says, the man who undertakes the rebuilding of the city, Jericho, is cursed before the Lord. He will lay its foundation at the cost of his firstborn. He will finish its gates at the cost of his youngest. The Lord intends for the rubble of Jericho to be a perpetual reminder of his victory his judgment, and his salvation. And so Joshua imposes this curse. And in the final words of the story, verse 27, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. This final reminder that the Lord was with Joshua and with the Lord is victory. And because the Lord is victorious, The fame of Joshua spreads throughout the land. And the fame of Joshua is really the fame of the Lord. So let's unpack this together. This is a challenging story. And I want to make sure we see it rightly in light of the scriptures. Revelation of who God is. There are two essential pictures that the scripture gives us that help us understand what God is revealing about himself in this story. One is we must not believe that Israel is better than the people of Jericho. We we must not think that Jericho is judged and Israel is not because Israel is better than Jericho. In fact, Moses, in one of his last statements of instruction to the Israelites, Moses conveys to Israel the appropriate perspective as they begin to go in as God's tool for judgment. This is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Moses says to Israel, Today you are about to cross the Jordan to enter and drive out nations greater and stronger than you with large cities fortified to the heavens. The people are strong and tall, descendants of the Anakim. You know about them and you have heard it said about them, who can stand up to the sons of Anak? But understand that today the Lord your God will cross over ahead of you as a consuming fire. He will devastate and subdue them before you. You will drive them out and destroy them swiftly as the Lord has told you. When the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of the land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. 
You are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promise he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. The first thing we've got to understand is that God does not tell Israel to go judge Jericho and wipe it out completely under his just judgment because Israel is better than Jericho. Israel is deserving of the same judgment that falls on Jericho. But God in his plans and purposes has chosen Israel to be his people that can walk in his victory through faith in him, a people undeserving of such mercy, a people deserving of judgment, who would then serve as a light to the world of God's mercy offered in the midst of judgment that's deserved. So we've got to understand, first of all, that Israel did not go in because they were better. Second thing we need to understand is found in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. This is a promise given to Abraham generations before this moment at the Jordan River. And this is what God says to Abram, starting in verse 13. Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. That's talking about Egypt. Verse 14, however, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace, be buried at a good old age. He's telling Abram it's going to be okay. In verse 16, in the fourth generation. They will return here. Here is the promised land. God is referencing the land that Joshua and the Israelites are about to begin taking. And he says in verse 16, this is the critical verse. In the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. 440 years before the moment Joshua is at the edge of Jericho about to wipe it out under God's just judgment for their sin. 440 years earlier, God says of those people, this is the land I'm going to give you, but I've got 400 more years of delaying judgment on them because their sinfulness has not yet reached its fullness. But there's a coming a day when their sin will reach a degree that my mercy runs out. Their sin will reach fullness. My mercy will run out. And in that moment, I will deploy my people to demonstrate my holiness by bringing the judgment they deserve. I recognize that the message of judgment is a hard message. I recognize that the idea of God's holiness calling to account 
a people's unrighteousness resulting in a judgment that destroys them is a hard message. I get that. But God in his justice determines the time when sin has reached its fullness and mercy has run out. And when he determines that moment has occurred, it will only indicate that every delay and every effort has been given for those to turn to him who are undeserving of the salvation he offers. Honestly, though, the real issue in this story is not the challenge of God's judgment on Jericho. The real issue is the difficulty of the message that every single one of us deserve the same judgment. The scripture tells us that by way of our own sin, every one of us deserves judgment. Every one of us. But God in his kindness has continued to do what he did for Jericho. Th think about the people of Jericho. Every household in Jericho had the testimony of who God is in the creation they lived in every day. The creator fashioning creation so that he displayed who he is. Every household in Jericho descended from someone who previously knew the Lord. And every person in Jericho recognize the might and the power of God himself as he led his people in victory by way of their faith, which was a display of his undeserving mercy. And he did that so that everybody in Jericho would have a present witness of who God is. The problem is that nobody in Jericho cared to align their lives with God, except Rahab and all her household. When, when Israel crossed the Jordan on the edge of Jericho, it was as if God was saying to Jericho, this is your final opportunity. And nobody wanted mercy except Rahab. The, the real story is not God's judgment on a deserving people, but God's salvation of undeserving people who live in the midst of a people who deserve judgment. That's the real story. That, that God delayed judgment on Jericho for over 400 years gave one last appeal for mercy. And Rahab and all her family were saved. They hung that scarlet thread out of the window. 
And when the walls came tumbling down, one section of the wall remained standing. And that one section of the wall that remained standing was Rahab's house. God saved the undeserving from judgment that everyone deserved. Does that sound familiar? If if we affirm the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, do you know what we affirm? We affirm both the judgment of God and the salvation of God. And we affirm it being offered to the world by way of a people who've experienced God's victory through grace and mercy. I ask myself the question, why do we know the Lord while others in the world do not? It's not because we're better. It's not because we deserved anything other than God's judgment. Why do we know the Lord? Because as inhabitants of Jericho, we found the scarlet thread of Jesus Christ. And now as his people, he has given us his battle plans. And they are plans that require us to drop the canoes of living life as if God wasn't a part of my life. And instead taking up his mission in the land in which he has placed me. And his mission is to simply love him and love others and help others to do the same. We, we are called to a mission as his church, a people who deserved his judgment, who have instead experienced his grace and mercy, who know what it's like to feel the walls crumble around and for our house to remain standing simply because we trusted in the scarlet thread of Jesus Christ. We've been given a mission to live in the land of Jericho and hold out the scarlet thread of hope hope in Jesus Christ to a people who will otherwise perish. You know when we say the words every Sunday, go live on mission, you know what we mean? We mean to leave this place as a people who keenly recognize that we have been delivered from the most horrible destruction ever imagined. We are free and we are forgiven and it's only by grace, not because we deserved it, but because God in his kindness chose us to be a people to go in the world and display the hope of Christ. That's what we mean by live on mission. One of the ways that we're trying to talk about that in our staff team is to think about living on mission as living generously. I love the picture that that creates in my mind when I think about the way I need to live. 
I'm so convicted and challenged by that word picture to live generously. You know, as I get older, I recognize the extreme commodity of time. You feel that? So precious. You know what living generously, living on mission looks like with your time? I'm fixing to step on your toes, all right? Fair warning. But I just want you to know I'm standing here with crushed toes myself. Living generously with your time means that no one in your life is ever an interruption in your time. When you live with generous time, no one's an interruption. Because living generously, living on mission means that you are giving your time away for the mission. And the mission is to help people find God and follow him. Think about your resources. God has given every one of us in this room the resources, the provision to live in the land he's placed us. We live where we live, when we live, because God wants us to follow him and he's provisioned each of our lives to live in the land. But the provision that he's given us was never intended to be only for living in the land. Living generous with your resources, living for the mission, means that you understand what God has given you is not just about your living in the land, but about enabling you to live in the land in such a way that you could give to others so that they see through your provision the provision of Jesus Christ. You use what you have for the mission. And the mission is to find God, help people find God and follow him. Living generously with your skills and your abilities and your interests. What does that look like? Well, every person in here has skills, abilities, and interests that are uniquely yours because of the way God made you. Some of you in here love to garden. Some of you love to paint. Some of you love to hike. Some of you love to create things, build things, invent things. Some of you like to write. Some of you like to read. Some of you like to develop other people in the areas where they're skilled. Everybody in here has interests, skills, and abilities that are unique to you because God fashioned you uniquely to be who he created you to be so that others who can really appreciate your skills, abilities, and interests might see in you as you live for the glory of Christ an excellence emerge in you that would speak of the perfect plan of Christ. So here's what that means. When you do what you love to do for God's glory and the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will discover people in your life who really appreciate the things you are good at and you love in such a way that you are able to share with them how Christ has given life to you. In other words, there are people in your life 
that need to hear about Jesus Christ through you because nobody can tell them about Christ like you can. If, if you live on mission, if you live generously, you are living who you are created to be for the mission to help others find God and follow him. It's time that we drop the canoes every morning of having lived yesterday to any degree for ourselves as if God was not the one who is with us and who has called us to live victoriously through faith in Jesus Christ. And we need to take up a new route of crossing a new mountain and helping someone in our lives find God and follow him. Someday, someday, the sins of the world will reach their fullness and the mercy of God will run out. Whose mission do we want to live by? Do you know sometime later in the history of Israel, during the reign of King Ahab, a man named Hiel rebuilds Jericho. And the scripture says in 1 Kings 16.34 that Hiel rebuilt Jericho at the cost of his firstborn and his youngest child. When I read that, you know, there's two questions that come out of my mind. One is, why didn't anybody tell him? And the second question is, if somebody did, did tell him, why didn't he believe it? I don't know which one of those things is reality, but this is certain. The word of the Lord regarding judgment and salvation is inevitable. How else should a saved people, saved by grace, want to spend their lives than dropping the canoes of living life without God and walking into the uncharted territory, living out the unimaginable, most unexpected mission of God, that an undeserving people would be saved by grace and take a message of salvation to a people who are deserving of judgment. So, may we live on mission.